Well, grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Um, um, this is, by the end of tonight, you will not want to hear the words, love your enemies ever again, um, or really just talk of love. Um, and and uh, it's, it's good and right that we have spent quite a bit of time on the subject. Uh, for one, it is election year. And Americans are going to show just how much we despise each other this year. And we all know it. And uh, it is important for us to remember as believers uh, that we are to carry ourselves differently. Romans chapter 13, this is Paul's exhortation regarding love as he rounds out his book. With that, if you will, stand with me. Reverence for God's Word. We'll read verses 8 to 10, short passage. Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's go to the Lord prayer. Our Father, we ask as always you would... Uh, you would transform us by your word that we believe. But Lord, this is the work of your spirit. Let Christians be different simply by the way we love. And may I decrease so you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. Seated. How much in debt do you think Americans are? Now, I'm not asking what is the national debt. Uh, we didn't count that high in my public school. And that number is only going up, and uh, which I actually think is one of the biggest scandals we don't talk about. Um, uh, this this is free. My wife and I watched Sound of Freedom for the first time last night. There's the other big scandal we don't talk about: human trafficking. But that's that. I'll save that for another sermon. Uh, but I'm talking about household debt. If you were to take all the households of of Americans, what what do you think the debt is? Now the national debt is like. Um, uh, 400,000 Elon Musks. But, but what do you think is, is the, the, the household debt at the national level be? Well, one number I came across, uh, it's on the internet, so you know it must be true, and that is that uh, it has rose up to over $17 trillion. That is student loans, credit cards, cars, mortgages, so on and so forth. Uh, I believe with credit card balances, by the way, this was the end of the second quarter of 2023, so less than a year ago. So that number is almost undoubtedly higher. Uh, credit card balances alone are reaching over a trillion dollars. And that is according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. One of the things I've noticed about we Americans is we are in so much debt. We go into debt to learn how to get out of debt. Uh, whenever I worked in the Christian bookstore, family Christian stores in Florence, um, we had a credit card. And you can come, you can sign up for our credit card. Now, uh, we, we were given certain points on how to sell this credit card, and our store was held accountable if we weren't getting people to sign up for this credit card. And uh, it had three crosses on it. We were told that, uh, to tell people that if you will sign up for our credit card, when you go to purchase things, you can share your faith with the person who is checking you out. Uh, that was one of our talking points. Do, do, do you can go into debt by leading people to Jesus. So you know, don't you want to go into debt? You know? um, but I remember that, that uh, in addition to us trying to sell you on, on you know, the, the, the spiritual uh, aspects of getting a credit card, um, we would give them a free gift. And the gift was a how to get out of debt uh, book. 
Uh, this is right when uh, Dave Ramsey's really starting to come to fame, as, as we know him today. This wasn't written by Dave Ramsey, but it, it was a basically what you would give Dave Ramsey, how to get out of debt. And can you guess what one of the chapters was recommending? You get rid of all your credit cards. So, so we were asking you to go into debt so you can learn how to get out of debt. Now, this is a very American thing to do, uh, that, that we are... Um, we, 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 we turn to debt gurus uh, and we go into debt because we pay so much money to them in order how to figure out how, how to get out of it. We Americans know a thing or two about debt. And uh, it is quite scary to think about what it is that we owe and how much money uh, in the economy is tied to debt. Paul talks about debt here. In fact, that's really his first point as it relates to love. That is the debt of love. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, this is only three verses that we have here, verses 8 to 10, and it's pretty straightforward. His message is, you should love everybody. All right, checkmate, let's go home. Um, but, but actually, of, of, this, of these three verses, the only real uh, interpretive challenge we have regards his exhortation to owe no one anything except to love. I do think at times, we, we uh, particularly uh, theologians, scholars, Bible commentaries, whatnot, I think we overcomplicate things so that we can have reason to publish things. Uh, that's true of academia in, in general. And so one of the things we do, I think, to overcomplicate this is we make this passage a, a Paul's discussion about things like debt, loaning money or taking a loan. Is Paul addressing that at all? And so a lot of people will come to this and say, see, Paul says you should owe nobody anything. Therefore, if you go to the bank and say, I need a personal loan to do X, Y, and Z, you are violating the New Testament law. If you take a car loan, a, a house loan, anything like that, you are uh, therefore violating what Paul says here. And I, I would just uh, disagree with that because that discussion misses the entire point of the text. Uh, Paul isn't interested in uh, a discussion about the economy. He's not interested in a discussion about banking, though there is a discussion of that in the Bible. And, uh, uh, but I don't think that's his point. Paul is playing with words and ideas. Uh, even though we, we can break down Romans 13 and, and other parts into sections. Here he's talking about government. Here he's talking about love. Here he's, he's talking about uh, other things. And, and, and we could do that. But remember that when Romans was written, there were no chapters or verses. The chapters came uh, later. The verses came even later. And, so, and then your subtitles in your Bible, that came from your publisher. And so we divided, but originally it wasn't. And so Paul is still picking up with where he left off. And what Paul was talking about before was debt. Not debt to your neighbor or debt to a bank, but debt to governments. What is our debt to government? Well, we call them taxes. And in the first seven verses, Paul talks about our relationship to government is to be one of submission. And, and, and not just submission, but of obeying laws. And one of the laws we're supposed to obey is taxes. By the way, uh, it, it's, tax season is coming up. I feel like you should be reminded of that. So in fact, go back to verse 7, right? So we, we picked up verse 8. Go back to verse 7, and this is made clear. Pay to all what is owed to them. Well, that seems to contradict if everything is about the economy and, 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 and loans and stuff. Verse 8, owe no one anything. So am I supposed to pay everything to everybody or am I supposed to owe them nothing? Well, you, you see the problem with that certain interpretation. Clearly, the first seven verses has to do with our role with government. So he says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
And with that in the immediate context, it makes sense what he's doing in making the transition. Paul's a good preacher. Is that each of his points have a, has a transition comment. So he says, speaking of money, at least, at least in, in terms of that lingo, here, here, here's an idea. Owe no one anything except the love. He's not talking about money. He's talking about love. In verse 7, he was talking about taxes, revenue, honor, and respect. In verse 8, he's talking about love. And so we have to interpret in, in light of that sort of context. So while we may owe government taxes, uh, which is a debt we can pay, we should simultaneously uh, owe one another a debt we will never fulfill. And that is love. That's his point. That you get your tax bill and you should, you should pay that. That is a debt you can pay off. And it's paid off until the next quarter, of course. But love is a debt we should receive every day, and we should keep paying it knowing it'll never be paid off. We should keep giving love. Financial burdens can be paid off, but we should never cease giving love. Paul's command here, though uniquely articulated, was not unique in Christianity, particularly that in the New Testament. A lot of these you will be familiar with, and I took several out. Uh, John 13, a new commandment I give you, sounds awfully like the old one. You love one another. I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the context of John 13? Here, when Jesus says this, he just got off of his knees from washing the feet of the 12 disciples. And here he says, you see how I've loved you. I've loved you as a slave. What a master. And that I came, though I am above you, I took on the form of a slave, an oriental slave, because that would be the job of an oriental slave to, to wash the feet of disciples. So even though I am preeminent among uh, this, this, this group in the upper room, uh, I actually chose to, to lower myself to the point of that of a slave for your benefits. And that becomes a picture of the cross that we talked about this morning. That see how I have loved you, that I have, I have washed your feet and soon I will shed my blood for you. So love here is sacrificial. It is service. It is all of those things. So here's a new commandment, which sounds awfully like the ode, love one another like Jesus. A 1 John 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. John loves to, to play with the ideas of light and, and lamb and life and love. He loves, he loves these ideas. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. So, so, so if, if, if you want to abide in Christ, then, then you will love your brother, which means as we love one another, we are proving that we are abiding in Christ. You want to see someone who's cantankerous around other believers, let alone their enemies? There is someone who is not abiding in Christ. You could probably say, when was the last time you honestly read your Bible and prayed? And they will have to think about it. If you want to abide in Christ, it will manifest itself in, in loving the brother. 1 John 3, this is his, his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's the commandment, just as he commanded us. Notice the repetition of the word command. Love is a commandment. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The big idea in 1 John is how do, how do I know that I am known? That's the big idea. So if you just do the word study of the word of know, K-N-O-W, know, uh, it, it shows up all over the place. We, we've looked at this in some detail. I'm sure if you get on uh, the, the YouTube archive or, or the podcast, you can, you can find our study of 1 John. And we explored that. His answer is twofold. One, you will know the truth. And secondly, you will walk in love. 
So not so the knowing the truth is that you are loved and that you you therefore love others as a result of, of the gospel. So there it is. Let us love one another because love is from God. That's the truth. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is how you know God. So clearly, this is, this is, we, we are just commanded to love. We, we should know this. Uh, 1 Peter uh, 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. There's truth and love here again. For a sincere brotherly love, phileo, Philadelphia. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly, with your very being. Love. Of course, the man to love goes beyond loving fellow believers, as we saw this morning. Scripture wants us to love non-believers as well, whether, whether uh, they are enemies or not. And, and we can see this even beyond the Sermon on the Mount. So in Romans 12, uh, so the previous chapter, what we're looking at here, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. What does that sound like? It sounds just like the Beatitudes. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, that, it that, that, that tradition seems quite early. And Romans, I believe, on, if my math is correct, Romans is written before Matthew. So if you want to see, figure out how, how reliable are the teachings of Jesus, they go pretty early. Uh, but that's a separate discussion. Galatians chapter 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Right? Not just the, those of the household of faith, but be good to everyone. This is clearly what, what we see in Scripture. And Paul's way of articulating it is that you are to owe no one anything except one thing, love. Love everyone and keep loving them. This is the expectation of the believer. It is not a matter of law in, in terms of a legalistic uh, responsibility, but rather of transformation. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've really noticed this with the age of social media. Uh, Facebook is perhaps the worst of this. Whenever people get a new job, their Facebook posts are, are centered around that role, and they think that what they're doing is the most important thing in the world uh, and that you should join them in this new adventure. So, so for example, let's say uh, uh, someone you know becomes a car salesman or sales weasel, as I like to put it in affection, but salesman. And what you're going to find is, is every post is going to be about them selling cars and, and why you should join them in buying a car. Uh, this is everything. Or let's say they, they, that they become a real estate agent. Same thing. They're going to show you all the houses that, they, that they're selling or, or buying or wherever it is. And they're going to make, give you the impression that real estate is the most important thing in the world right now. No one's been talking about it until I took this on. And it may not have been an interest to them before they took on this role, but it certainly is now. Or, or we could think of anything. Maybe, maybe they join a nonprofit. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe uh, they're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe they're a preacher even or a journalist. But, but everything about them seems, seems to change, particularly in their presence online. Why? It's because everything about them has changed. Have you, I, I remember seeing a newlywed uh, uh, husband and wife who... Uh, They've been married like for three days and they're already given marriage advice. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, well, what well, everything about them changed. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we take on this role or, or we take on certain responsibilities or a title change, whatever it is, 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 is that something changes about us. So too, when we take on the, the role of a citizen of the kingdom of God, something should change about us. We should walk in love like the one who loved us. So that is the debt of love. He then moves to the demand of love. Speaking of the law, Paul addresses it head on here in verse 9. For the commandments, 
shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, Paul is a Jew. He's writing to a congregation made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And without a doubt, even the Gentiles would have started to become familiar with the Old Testament because the early church had a Bible. It was called what we call the Old Testament. And they saw Jesus in the Old Testament all over the place. And so he's quoting from them uh, what we call the Ten Commandments. And, and what he shows us here is that there is a law that trumps all the laws. And so he points us to the Ten Commandments here. Now, have you ever considered how laws only exist because of man's foolishness and failure to love? In fact, uh, we are in the middle of session right now because my work at the Capitol makes me think that's the most important thing in the world, right? As I was just saying. And, and so uh, laws will be passed— you will read about those laws and you will think, probably should have already been a law. Or you can think, didn't know that was an issue. Let me assure you, every law exists because we are fools and we fail to love. There will be laws coming one day that you would look back and say, well, I remember 20 years ago, we didn't have to worry about this sort of thing. But now we do because we're a bunch of fools. I mean, think about it. Would you need any regulation or ordinance that requires a speed bump in your neighborhood if we weren't driving like we are on Fast and Furious? No, no, you wouldn't need it. In fact, your neighborhood didn't have speed bumps forever and ever. Then one day you had speed bumps. Our neighborhood has speed bumps now. They're not technically speed bumps, but what, what the city did, and you can tell them I said this, is, is they blacktop the road without stripping it first. So all the manholes and everything else was there are 10 times worse now. And they never came to fix them. So I know when someone's passing by, not because they're speeding or because they're listening to too loud music, but because you hear a thuh-thuh, thuh-thuh, right? And you're like, oh, they're down by old man Jim's house. Okay, or they're coming this way. Uh, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I just get that off my chest. Um, I mean, think about it. If, if would we need sneeze guards at salad bars if we weren't gross to each other, right? You shouldn't need that stuff. That should be common sense. Don't sneeze on the lettuce. I don't know. Uh, well, we need signs telling a drive. This drives me crazy because I remember in a world we didn't need this. There are now big, giant yellow signs, particularly in the interstate, that basically says, if you see emergency lights in your rearview mirror, you should pull over. And you're thinking, duh, who isn't doing this? And why are they allowed to drive and vote? Right? Well, why is this? Every law exists because of man's foolishness and failure to love. They are a reminder of our depravity, laws, ordinances, regulations. Most of them would be unnecessary if we simply loved one another. Really is that simple. The believer there at the end of verse 8, we see that loves his neighbor like a debt, debtor to the loner. Uh, and so he, he has this, 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 this sense of obligation. We have an obligation to love. After all, we, we owe love. And in that obligation, we, we fulfill the law. And to prove his point, Paul again points us to the Ten Commandments. You'll recognize these. Now, I've pointed this out before. The Ten Commandments are broken into two parts. Four have to deal with laws regarding worship. Right? So, so these would be uh, laws regarding how to love God. Keep the Sabbath. Don't make graven images. That stuff. Then six of them uh, have to do with laws regarding your neighbor. So how to love your neighbor. Very practical. And so if, if next time you see like uh, someone has designed the Ten Commandments, see if they break it down into four and then six. Uh, if you go to Murphy, North Carolina, where my wife and I had our honeymoon, 
um, which is the far west tip of North Carolina, Blue Ridge Mountains. Beautiful. The cabins are wonderful. There is the world's largest Ten Commandments on sign of a hill. I'm not making this up. Uh, and, and you go there, and sure enough, they have four laws on one side, six on the other. Now, it is a big old Ten Commandments. You do not need glasses. And let me tell you, I am more blind than all of you. And I think I could see them if the sun isn't too bright. Anyways, um, uh, what Paul does here is he highlights four of the laws of the Ten Commandments from the neighborly side of it, four of the six. Now, he hints at the rest when he says any other commandment. So he, so he, he doesn't put them in the right order, and it seems as if he's thinking of them off the top of his head. But his point is that at the core, these laws exist to remind us that when we fail to love, we often fail to love in these ways. So when we do not love God with our entire being, how does that manifest itself? We worship other gods. We don't rest. We don't do all of these things. Or we do all these things, and so we have to be reminded of them. When we don't love our neighbor, how does that often manifest itself? Well, you can read the next six, and you're going to see that. And he highlights those because he's in the context of of, of, of loving your neighbor. Look at them real quickly. The first one is adultery. Sexual sin is a failure to love. To commit adultery is to ruin a marriage and, and at least one marriage and therefore ruin lives. It is more insulting when a couple divorce because of adultery and the guilty party look at the children and try to justify how they still love their spouse uh, while loving this new person more. But don't worry, they will love their children very much. I remember I had a good buddy of mine. His, his dad committed adultery, ended up leaving his wife and kids to marry this other woman, start a whole other family with them. I remember my, my good friend and his sister, they, they, they were close in age, they were about a year apart. And I was, I was friends with all of them. I remember them thinking, if, God, if dad loved us so much, why do you do this? In fact, when he says he loves mom, does he love us the way he loved mom? Sure, feels like it, because he abandoned us like he abandoned her. I mean, that, 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 that's real questions. Adultery is a, is, is a violation of loving uh, your, your spouse. Marriage is a guard, should be a guard, is intended to be a guard against such sin. Marriage is a bond of selfless love. Adultery, lust, and everything else is like a serpent entering into the garden. The minute it comes in, it, it, it is easy to deceive us and everything else. It must be crushed. Adultery is a failure to love. Murder, this should be obvious, that too is a failure to love. When we choose violence, we choose uh, we do not choose love, anger, resentment, malice, bitterness, envy, often contribute to violence and murder. All of these are a violation the principle to love. This should be an obvious point, which means that when we choose anger, when we choose resentment, when we choose uh, uh, to be easily triggered, we are not choosing love. And then he has steal. Do not steal. Stealing, again, is a failure to love. Taking what is not ours uh, or taking what we think we deserve, or taking what that person does not deserve, but we do, all of those are uh, a way of violating the law of love. The thief lacks contentment. The thief lacks gratitude. The thief lacks love. Lacks love. Well, finally, there is coveting. This is an interesting one because of the Ten Commandments, this is the one we don't think about much. We should probably think about it the most. In fact, I would argue, and scholars have pointed this out, in fact, Martin Luther pointed this out in the 16th century, that if you take the first commandments, uh, worship God, 
you don't need the other nine. Inversely, if you keep the Tenth Commandments, you don't need the previous nine. Anyway, if, if, if you worship God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, your being, your very soul, are you going to violate your marriage vows? No. Are you going to prioritize your own interests, wants, and, and work and everything else on the Sabbath? No, because worship will be a priority. You're going to keep all those. Are you going to take the life of an image bearer of God? No, because no, you, you, you love God with your entire being. Inversely, if, if you go to the other end and you don't covet, you want to know one of the things you're not going to covet? Another God. You'll be content with, with the, the God that exists. You'll fall in love with him. Are you going to covet your neighbor's donkey to use Old Testament language? No. Or your, your coveting will prevent murder and, and, and lying and everything else. Uh, scholars have always agreed with that. In fact, I think the New Testament hints at this. We get a hint of it here, but also consider uh, Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and pure, who is covetousness. By the way, I think this may be a veiled reference to the adultery command because Jesus shows us it's not just about adultery, it's about the heart. Or who is covetous? That is an idolater. Notice what he just did there, is that a person who covets commandment 10 is guilty of commandment 1 idolatry. And so he says that, that, that if, you, if you get this one wrong, you're automatically getting that one wrong. And if you're getting either one of these wrong, you get all of them wrong in the middle. And that sort of person, because when you violate that one, you're really violating all of them. You're not entering the kingdom of God. So I think it's right for us to interpret that way. Coveting violates the laws. We desire other gods. We desire another woman. We desire someone's possessions. And as a result, we give into our desire and choose the self over love. Covetousness is a violation of love. And now notice there's this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when it comes to the command of love, I think we spend too much time on this little phrase. In fact, I've not done a whole study of this. I bet Christians of the last 100 years have spent more time on how to love yourself than Christians have combined the previous 1900. That's my guess. I'm not an expert in this. I've not done the study of it. But uh, find someone that has the most expensive version of logo software and tell them to, to do a study of that. I'm willing to bet that because, man, no one loves themselves like Americans love themselves. In fact, our entire ideology as a country is, if you do not love me the way I love myself, you are outside of my little kingdom and shame upon you. Man, we love us himself, don't we? We just love, love ourselves so, so much. I've shared this before. Years ago, this is, this is back when we lived in Louisville, so this is over 15 years ago. Um, the Time Magazine Person of the Year, this is back when we had magazines. Your kids wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Time Magazine Person of the Year, remember who it was? It was you. It had a mirror on the cover. You could pick it up and like, I made it, y'all. I'm the person of the year. Look at there. And that, that just, just tells you American culture right there. It appears the standard by which Jesus commands us to love is to survey how we love ourselves. The assumption is that we do love ourselves because that is the natural way that we, we think about things. And we do love ourselves. One of the things I've discovered is that the most depressed and anxious people in the world are the most prideful. This may be the only thing you get from me this evening, and it'll just blow your mind. If you see this, you'll never unsee it. You have anyone in your life who struggles with anxiety? Yeah, they're probably in their 20s and they're male. You have them in your life. And one of the things you'll find is they're the most arrogant people you'll ever meet. 
Because the only person they talk about is himself. Ergo, why they are so anxious. So, so the, the, it's clouded in humility. No one loves me and I'm stressed out and, and people treat me bad and I had a bad childhood. And you just want to say, can I fix this for you? You are not the most important person in the world. You're not the most important important person in your world. Stop it. Stop it. And anxiety will go right out the door, a good chunk of it. Good chunk of it. Why are we so anxious about our kids? Because we don't want to be viewed as a bad mother or father. We're so anxious about our marriage because we don't want to be viewed as a bad husband or wife. Why are we so anxious about churches and work and finances? Because of the way we feel that we are perceived by others and how we want to be perceived by others. That is pride. It's pride. Like we've already established. You, you love you some, some yourself. I know that. Well, perhaps more than that, what Jesus is assuming here is that not just that we generally love ourselves, but we love ourselves despite our own faults. We know that we have weaknesses, and yet we keep going despite them. Love your neighbor like that. Love one another like that. Love your enemy like that. One of the things I've found that the person you dislike the most is really just as human as you are. Love them as you love yourself. You know where your flaws are. Love them regardless. Real quickly, finally, the, the disposition of love. We come now to the summary of, of Paul's argument here. Verse 10 is a thesis statement that love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Whether we're talking about the believer's role in society, relation, like in the relation to the government, relation to your neighbor, there is one overarching love, law, and that is to love. Love is the secret to righteousness. It is the secret to well-being. If we live by gospel love, we not only please the Lord, conform to his image, we will live more blessed lives to be a blessed to others. We saw that this morning. Let me give you just two final points of, of application. The first is love is a better motivator than fear. Our motivation for righteousness is often fear. I don't want God to judge me. I don't want others to think little of me. It's rooted by fear. If you grew up in a legalistic church, you what motivated you was fear. I've shared this story before. Um, um, we always ate at the pool hall in Oynton. It's a non-gambling, non-alcohol sort of place. It's the pool hall, local pool. Not eating there, go there. Get you a Ralph burger, call and thank me later, and then you can take me out the next time you go. It is excellent. It's a big blue building. You can't, well, you can miss it because it's Oynton, but um, uh, we would get a drink to go when we leave on Wednesday nights for church, and uh, we would eat with another family, and, and their kids were like best friends with my brother and I, and and I remember it was raining one day, and we parked in front of the church, and, and we were going to take our drinks to the refrigerator in the fellowship hall. But because it was raining, I didn't want to walk around the church. I walked right through the sanctuary with a cup, and an elderly lady swatted me on the back. Get that out of here. And just I didn't tell my parents because, well, you can, you've met them. Um, but that was it. That, 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 that was, it was very, very, this is right, this is wrong, very, very legalistic. If you do X, you will suffer Y. But when we are motivated by love, righteousness becomes normal. Wisdom becomes normal. The well-being of, of ourselves and others becomes normal. And that may be a radical message here. After all, my love for my wife is not motivated in fear. If my wife is sick, I take care of her. If she's lonely, I sit and listen to her. If, if she wants to talk, I will, I will grin and bear it. Right? Why? Because I love her. Not because I'm scared of what she may do to me. Because I love her. Because I love her. Secondly, finally, problems are easy to fix when we choose love. This, you've heard me say this a thousand times before. Most of the world's problems could be fixed if we just got over ourselves. 
Um, think about your marriage. Think about how often we can solve our problems. Take ownership of your sin, repent of it, which is itself an act of love, and then walk in love. When we can realize that I have contributed to conflict and address what, our, what myself has contributed to this, because what we usually do is we, we can see the sins of others easier than we can see the sins of, of ourselves. When we are honest about our own sin and the other party is honest about their own sin, then with at all out in the open, then we can reconcile through forgiveness, confession, and everything else. And then when we learn to walk in love, we will not repeat the things that led to the situation to begin with. And the sooner we do that, the better off that, that we are. I just solved all of our problems. I can fix everything in this country right there. And, and if I can put it in the book, it'll be about uh, one paragraph long, and it'll be a bestseller. But I'm going to charge you $50 on hardback, and I'm going to go on Oprah to say it. So there we go. Just solved all the world's problems. That is true for the church, communities, families, nation, etc. Without love, the true fuel for morality and integrity um, well, it just, just isn't going to work out. Well, um, I want to read to you. I stole this from John MacArthur, so he gets all the credit. It's a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Read this, we'll be done. If I know the language perfectly and speak like a native and have not God's love for them, I am nothing. If I have diplomas and degrees and know all the up-to-date methods and have not his touch of understanding love, I am nothing. If I am able to argue successfully against the religions of the people and make fools of them and have not his wooing note, I am nothing. If I have all kinds of faith and great ideals and magnificent plans and not his love that sweats and bleeds and weeps and prays and pleads, I am nothing. If I give my clothes and money to them and have not his love for them, I'm nothing. If I surrender all prospects, leave home and friends, make the sacrifices of a missionary career and turn sour and selfish amid the daily annoyances and slights of a missionary life and have not the love that yields its rights, its leisures, its pet plans, I am nothing. Virtue has ceased to go out of me. If I can heal all manner of sickness and disease but wound hearts and hurt feelings for want of his love that is kind, I am nothing. If I can write articles or publish books that win applause but fail to transcribe the word of the cross into the language of his love, I am nothing. Christianity really isn't all that complicated. Uh, we, we started winter training with our soccer team, and every year I tell them the same thing. Soccer is not a complicated sport. You don't even have to score in it to, to get a point. It is not a complicated sport. It is all about open spaces Go to open space, receive the ball in open space, pass it to your teammate in open space, and eventually you get a shot on goal. So too Christianity is not that complicated. Love as God has loved you. You get that? You'll fulfill the whole book. Well, let's pray. Father, we